Game on on 2FM. With Green Farm. Being up to 90 isn't real. The protein in our range is get real. And a very good evening from Damien O'Mara. You are most welcome to the Wednesday edition of Game On. Busy hour of sporting chat to come between now and 7 o'clock. We are going to start the programme tonight as we ended it last night chatting about Novak Djokovic. If you were with us, we discussed the fact that he was not going to get the warmest of welcomes when he landed in Australia, having received a medical exemption to compete in the Australian Open. But it has discovered or has emerged 24 hours on that he might not even get past immigration. One man who certainly is keeping a keen eye on it all is the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Novak Djokovic, when he arrives in Australia, I'm not quite sure when he's going to turn up, but I don't think it's too far away. If he's not vaccinated, he must provide acceptable proof that he cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons. If that evidence is insufficient, then he won't be treated any different to anyone else and he'll be on the next plane home. More on that to come in just a moment. Last night, as we finished, we heard news that Liverpool had requested the postponement of tomorrow's uh, League Cup semi-final first leg against Arsenal. We're going to chat about the COVID crisis around Anfield. We're also going to cast an eye on some of the Irish players who may be in need or in search of a transfer during the transfer window. Uh, All of that to come. And as well as that, often probably amongst the most maligned of international soccer tournaments, but at the same time, certainly one of the most competitive We're going to look ahead to the African Cup of Nations as Ian Wright is amongst the voices defending its place in the calendar. Is there ever a tournament more disrespected than the African Cup of Nations? The coverage is completely tinged with racism. We played our Euros across 10 countries in the middle of a pandemic and there's no issue, no issue at all. But Cameroon, a single country hosting a tournament is a problem. We will chat about that to Mark Leeson later on in the programme. We'd love to hear from you. You can text us. Our number is 51552. Or you can tweet the programme at Game on 2 fm Game on on 2FM. So a very good evening from Damien O'Mara. It's nice to have your company this Wednesday evening. I'm still at that stage of the new year where I will probably get the year wrong. And thanks to producer Ronan Lawler, who's put the day of the week on the top of the running order because I'm still trying to readjust to back to work. Anyway, busy day. Uh, in sport, the Novak Djokovic story we will get stuck into in a couple of minutes' time. Yesterday, we had news from Munster that Graham Roundtree was to sign a two-year contract extension to stay until the summer of 2024. Well, today, six players have joined the ranks of those committing their future uh, to the province. Joey Carberry, Jean Klein, Chris Farrell. Uh, amongst those, Liam Coombs, Jack O'Sullivan and the Irish under-20 captain, Alex Kendellan all committing their future to Thoman Park, uh, which will aid that sense of consistency as they look to appoint a new head coach towards the tail end of the season, or certainly in time uh, for the start of the next year's uh, URC. Uh, Ulster obviously making a visit to Thoman Park on Saturday. They're still assessing the health of their squad ahead of that game, which uh, incidentally will be live on RTE Radio 1 Extra on digital radio if you want to join uh, the coverage of that. It's uh, also live on RT2 
to television. Uh, Ulster monitoring the situation uh, to see squad availability and player availability. And the other story of note today uh, involving Irish sport is uh, news this morning that a court in Brazil has removed some of the charges against former Olympic Council of Ireland President Pat Hickey, who of course was arrested in Rio on the eve of the 2016 Games as part of an investigation into alleged illegal ticket sales. Three of the charges against uh, Mr Hickey, along with Kevin Mallon, who is the director of sports hospitality company THG, and a Brazilian woman were dropped from the case due to the extinction of punishability uh, in a decision which uh, was published back in October. Uh, It's uh, important, of course, to remember that um, at all times, um, Pat Hickey obviously uh, insisting that uh, he had not done anything which uh, deserved the charges which were brought against him. So that story from that court in Brazil removing some of those charges against Pat Hickey uh, and others involved in that story from the Rio Games back in 2016. So as mentioned, 51552 is our text number if you'd like to make contact with us between now and 7 o'clock. We have often talked about a week being a long time in politics, uh, a week being a long time in sport, but 24 hours is a long time in sport as well, particularly if you're Novak Djokovic. So yesterday, if you were with us, you will have heard news that he was awarded a medical exemption to allow him to compete in the upcoming Australian Open. Obviously, uh, in April of last year, he was particularly vocal against vaccinations against COVID-19. That's obviously impacted on his ability and the ability of other leading tennis players to compete uh, in a number of international tennis tournaments. He was amongst 26 people to apply for medical exemptions and has been awarded one which would allow him to play but then there has been a tear in the matrix and a further obstacle has been set in his way so uh, this has all happened over the last couple of hours we thought to ourselves could we rise uh, Melbourne based Irish journalist Catherine Murphy from her slumber to chat to us at an ungodly hour Australian time but by a cruel kind twist of fate uh, Catherine's on a well deserved break home and joins us from Cavan Catherine how are you? How are you, Damien? Lovely it's, to talk to and you. And it's very nice to hear you and not to have had to get you up out of bed at a ridiculous hour in order to join us. This is a lovely time to talk to you, I have to say. I'm not good in the morning despite doing some breakfast TV. It takes a lot of coffee. There we go. Well, you and me both. Um, can I ask you, before um, before we talk about Djokovic and before we get your insight as someone who's who's been in Melbourne and been in Australia for over a decade at this stage, I, I know you... Like you're on on a break home, and you firsthand have experienced the challenges, the restrictions that have been placed on people resident in Australia, and you can give us that insight straight away into the passion, the anger that will exist at the back of all this for people who've had to live under the world's longest cumulative restrictions. That this is a very, very sensitive issue for people in Australia and in Victoria in particular. Damien, you've hit the nail exactly on the head. I think what we're seeing, and the reason Novak Djokovic is right now still at Tullamarine Airport, and I'm hearing reports he's in a room without access to a mobile phone, this is a manifestation of a city, of a state that is really angry. As you said, Melbourne had the longest cumulative lockdown in the world. Melbournians have gone through such tough times. The vaccine rollout was slow and because of that there was a huge rush to get everyone vaccinated. Partly because of that, vaccine mandates were brought in and it was really strict because unlike Ireland where the vaccination 
rollout started quicker, people had time to decide and make up their own mind. And now in Ireland, we're so lucky to have such a high vaccination rate. But in Australia, there was serious pressure to get the vaccines into arms. And that led to mandates right up until the time that vaccination was getting high. Melbourne and Sydney were still in lockdown. Now, in Melbourne particularly, this wasn't a lockdown that you may have experienced here. It was so much stricter, Damien. We're talking a curfew, and I'm not talking about a restaurant curfew where I was out in Dublin a couple of weeks ago and it it shuts up at 8 o'clock, but you can go to someone's house. I'm talking about a curfew where you have to be in your home by 9pm. It's illegal to take the bins out. So when a city has been through that sort of lockdown and they see an extremely talented tennis player, he's won the Australian Open nine times. He has 20 Grand Slams. As we know, he's been quite vocal in the past about having certainly a resistance to wanting to be vaccinated. Then he said he didn't want to reveal whether he was vaccinated or not. And other players said that too. Daniel Medvedev, the reigning US Open champion, who's happily in Melbourne now playing, he also said he didn't want to reveal his status. And then all of a sudden he signed up for the Australian Open and the ATP Cup, which is a build-up tournament, and everything was fine. Because of the length of this saga with Djokovic, it has reached an unbelievable situation in Melbourne right now. I'm hearing there's a big media contingent at the airport and they've been there throughout the night to see if he'll be allowed to leave. Mm. We are chatting, I think it's 5am or thereabouts, 10 past 5 in the morning in Melbourne. Um, The the anger that existed yesterday and the questionings about the transparency of the medical exemption process and, you know, we have to be conscious here, we're dealing with a man's private medical situation. Um, We touched on it on the programme last night that an organisation like Tennis Australia will know the focus that existed here that you would like to think somewhere along the line transparency will exist. I know Craig Tilley, their chief executive, came out and said there's been no favours done here. But as Melbourne and as Australia wakes up this morning, there is going to be an unbelievable level of satisfaction, I would imagine, that this potential obstacle has been placed in the way of Djokovic and what he represents to a lot of people in Victoria. And that's right, Damien. And as you say, it's a really sensitive, complex situation because the exemption process itself is really complicated because it wasn't, of course, just Tennis Australia involved in that exemption process and their medical input. It was also the Victorian government. Now, this is where it gets really complicated, Damien, because they appointed medical officials to be part of an independent panel to decide whether an exemption would be given. However, the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, who's currently on leave, but I've no doubt is in touch with his colleagues, of course he is, and knows at every turn what's happening right now, he has said every step of the way he would not support Novak Djokovic entering Victoria if he wasn't vaccinated. So then when news of the exemption came, it was assumed that there must have been a change of mind, that Victoria would be supporting his entry. But all that had happened, Damien, was they had medically 
given an exemption. Then Victoria announced, while Novak Djokovic was on his way to Australia, that while that exemption existed, they wouldn't support his visa. Then when he actually landed on Australian soil, reportedly he has applied or his team have applied for a visa that doesn't allow medical exemptions. Now, these are all reports that he's been stopped at the border, not because of the validity or otherwise of his exemption, but because of a visa mistake. And But the, the, the fallout from all of this is he or someone, he's either, well, I can't imagine, like there's, there's loads of, of jokes doing the rounds on Twitter that, you know, the next season of border security is going to be compelling if it features this, which like we have to remember, there's a very serious issue at play here, but one would imagine that he is either going to have to come out to clarify the basis on which he got a medical exemption, or despite the fact that the process was anonymous, Tennis Australia are going to have to, I would imagine, bow to public pressure and explain exactly why this has been given. That's right, Damien. And first of all, the visa situation which he is experiencing right now, that is where the federal government will have to get involved because Victoria have said, well, they do have discretion in these cases. If someone's applied for the wrong visa, they can sponsor it to get that person into the country. They've said they won't do that. So for Novak Djokovic to be allowed to leave the airport, that is in the hands of the federal government. But the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, as you played earlier, said that when he arrives, the federal government will want to see exactly how he qualified for that medical exemption. And like you say, surely during that process, there would have to be transparency because the reaction to this story has been like nothing I've seen before. So if they are to say, okay, we've checked the documents, the exemption is valid, he will play, you're exactly right, Damien. There's got to be at least an explanation or it would be very difficult for him to move forward because Novak Djokovic is a guy who wants the crowd's support. He's playing tennis at a time where there is adoration for Roger Federer, for Rafael Nadal. He's always craved that love and support from crowds. And he's going to get the opposite after this, Damien. And there's so much at stake for his career. He has 20 Grand Slams, equal to Roger and Rafa. One more and he becomes the all-time record holder. He could lose out on an opportunity to do that if this doesn't play out his way or even if he gets to play. Mm. Can he cope with the crowd's reaction? Can, not to get overly political or not to sound overly cynical, but Scott Morrison's popularity ratings have plummeted. So he's in a catch-22 situation where if he's seen to facilitate this, those ratings are going to plummet somewhat more. And if you're cynical, there is potentially political uh, factors to be played into here, or you know, political benefits to reap from being the man who helps stand in the way. There is no doubt that this is very much a political story now and it's playing out between the state government of Victoria and the federal government. And I think any politician would know that being the person that gets Novak Djokovic out of the airport now and onto a tennis court will not be a popular person. 
or will the state and federal governments come together to work on a resolution? That hasn't happened up until now. It's been like a tennis match between the state and the federal governments who have been saying it's not our responsibility, we won't decide. For example, the sitting sports minister, she has said, you know, they're not going to sponsor the visa. Visa approvals are for the federal government. That's the prime minister. Medical exemptions are for doctors. We don't sponsor visas. So the state government of Victoria have really tried to take themselves out of the situation. And what we've ended up with is a tennis player, the world number one, if you are to look at Twitter and see it's a Serbian journalist, Saza Osmo, has tweeted that he's in a room without a mobile phone Mm. until this deadlock is broken between state and federal government. Yeah, and that, that is not a situation that the world's leading sports people find them in all too often. Can I just ask you, away from Djokovic and considering what life has been like in Melbourne, obviously... You know the the US the Australian Open went ahead last year. Is there opposition to its staging, or are people happy to see it up and running, or or is the Djokovic issue just maybe pouring further fuel on a fire of resistance that exists already? I think last year, Damien, it was a real struggle for the Australian Open, and I have a lot of friends that work in tennis, and they worked twenty four seven to get that tournament up and running. And we all saw what happened. There was hard lockdown and quarantine for players. There were players training in hotel rooms Mm. in Melbourne, taking the mattress off the bed of five-star hotels, Damien, putting it up against the wall and playing tennis with it. Now, can you imagine the cost to even get those hotel rooms back to normal after the tennis players left? So they did that at massive cost because... In the tennis world, you cannot take owning and running a Grand Slam for granted. And Australia did not want to lose momentum. It's known as the Happy Slam. The players absolutely love it. They didn't want to skip a year. And they got through it just about. This year, from what I know, there was so much excitement about Melbourne coming back to a little bit of normal. So the Grand Prix was cancelled last year. Then it was moved to November. That was cancelled. In Melbourne, usually the first Grand Prix of the year is held at Albert Park. It's now been moved to April. So the tennis coming back was supposed to be a happy time, Damien. Mm. But Omicron came along. And just like Christmas was supposed to be a happy time for everyone things change very quickly but tennis is very loved but this Novak Djokovic quandary it's so emotive I've never seen such an emotional response and there's no doubt it's not good for the tournament to have this happening it's it's just such a difficult situation for Tennis Australia. Yeah, and we'll see how it plays out in, in the coming hours, no doubt. If you don't mind me, I, I don't mean to pry or to be invasive, but I'd imagine it must have been very emotional for you to have come through Dublin Airport and finally made it home, having lived under that cloud in Melbourne and lived under such restrictions. I, I, I've no doubt you've enjoyed your Christmas break back in Cavan. Oh, it's been amazing, Damien. I head back tomorrow, and, you know, usually I'd be thinking, how good would it be to be a VIP and just, you know, arrive at the airport and go through passport control quickly? But I'm quite happy that I'm a pleb <laughs> arriving back at the moment. Hopefully I'll get through the airport a little bit quicker. Yeah. 
There you go. No no rooms without phones and you sure you, you don't have to face any of those visa issues. So it's all all above board and, and everything Fingers else. Fingers crossed. It'll all be good. Um I wish you safe travels. It's been great to, to chat to you. Having it, you know, in the, the modern world where we interact with people on social media without ever having met them or spoken to them, it's nice after all of these tweets back and forth over the years to finally have a chat even if it is through the medium of radio rather than in person. It's so lovely to talk to you, Damien. You can call any time. Even better when it's the evening. Yeah, exactly. Not not at <laughs> five o'clock in the morning. Catherine, safe travels. Thanks so much for being with us and enjoy those last couple of hours home for the Christmas break. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Damien. Catherine Murphy joining us there. And if you've got family or friends in Australia, they will know her from ABC uh, in Melbourne, where she plies her trade. And it's uh, great to have her insights and great to uh, catch up with her. So a lot more still to come on the programme. 51552 is our text number if you'd like to make contact. We're going to chat about Liverpool's COVID crisis. Irish players perhaps in search of a transfer in the January transfer window. And we are going to look ahead to the African Cup of Nations as well. Stay with us. Green Farm. Rise and grind as the hustle mindset aren't real. The protein in our chicken is. Get real. Game on on 2FM. And you're very welcome back to the programme. This is Damien O'Mara with you. 51552 for your texts. At Game on 2FM for your tweets. We are going to switch attention to soccer next. And uh, last night, just as we were about to come off air, the uh, news came true that Liverpool had requested the postponement of the uh, League Cup semi-final first leg which was due to be played tomorrow night but uh, that has now been postponed by the EFL we're going to chat about that and more with Fergal Brennan who joins us Fergal how are you? Very well and yourself? Not too bad thanks for being with us good to chat to you we've a, a bit of a delay on the line but we'll uh, we'll do our best not to let that uh, intercede too much um, th- this uh, as with so many matches in recent times um, was always going to be the case but it, 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 we, we do kind of have to wonder why does the Carabao Cup the English League Cup need a two-leg semi-final which seemed to be part of the stumbling block here as to whether or not Liverpool might have to forfeit the fixture or forfeit the semi-final or how do you fit two legs of football into what's already a very compressed needlessly compressed calendar yeah, I mean, that's one of the big points coming out of all of this. Obviously, the situation with the, the rise in COVID cases within the Liverpool squad and the staff, Pep Linders, um, Jurgen Klopp's assistant, has, has tested positive this morning. The big issue, as you say, is this idea that certain contingency plans could and should have been made surrounding the organisation and the competition. That was the case last season when, obviously, COVID was still a disruptive um, force to English football, the Premier League, the FA Cup, the League Cup. There, there was changes made, there was allowances made to, to cut certain things to, to get more games played and to make sure that there wasn't as many dislay, delays and disruptions. I fully agree this this could very easily have just been set as a single leg game. We know traditionally it is a, a two-legger played in January um, but if this had been decided weeks or months ago then there's a much smaller issue uh, in terms of organising and fitting all these games into the schedule because as you say it is already bloated. Liverpool have missed games over the festive period because of Covid so have Arsenal. Now they both have to add this in. Does the FA Cup to come this weekend Liverpool obviously have the Champions League in February so we're halfway through the Premier League season there's still a stack of games to be played in that and now on top of this you've got two legs of this semi-final FA Cup games to commit to Champions League games to commit to for Liverpool and in terms of tests or or rather positive tests 
forcing games to be called off. The end is not really here just yet. We're expecting this to, to probably go on for another couple of weeks because there's no guarantee that certain games this weekend or certain games next weekend won't be called off. So the end is not quite in sight just yet. And uh, it's going to be a very, very messy period going into February and, and probably kicking on into March. And part of the, the stumbling block with this as well is be careful what you wish for because Jurgen Klopp a couple of weeks ago was seen as the, the white knight of sensibility in terms of his uh, comments on vaccine vaccination and the level to which the staff and the playing base at Liverpool was vaccinated. So you or I are not public health experts, but it is a reminder as well that despite vaccination and your best efforts, uh, this is a disease which is going to cause difficulties if it gets inside the door. Of course, and, and this is one of the issues. A lot of this has become very tribal between Liverpool fans or Arsenal fans or fans of other clubs that are kind of sick of these last-minute or late cancellations over games. But the reality is, I can tell you from, from working and going to, to Kirby, where, where Liverpool train and going to Anfield and, and other grounds, particularly in the northwest. The Premier League clubs are breaking their backs in terms of ensuring that um, guidelines are kept in place for mask wearing, for social distancing, for, for lateral flow tests, all of these things. And that has extended to, to playing staff and, and club officials, coaches, managers, etc. But it's not an absolute, it's not it's not a bulletproof vest, these measures that are brought in. And that was the example with the, with the training ground being closed um, a couple of days ago. Liverpool acting proactively uh, based on the fact that there was a rise in cases following Premier League advice and guidelines to close their training facility and that's what's made the idea of playing more of the youth players at a bit of a moot point because the youth players if they've been drafted in to play this this semi-final against Arsenal would have nowhere to train interestingly the, the Liverpool youth FA Cup game against I think it's Burnley on Sunday has now been called off for that reason because it's unsafe for those young players to go in and train because the entire facility has been closed down. So uh, the kind of blame game surrounding that is is a bit of a, a bit of a a bit of a dead end because everyone is doing their best, but as you say, it can't be helped if cases do start to rise. You can only do so much to, to prevent that. And the the irony of all this is Liverpool moved into a training facility in Kirby um, within the past twelve months, whereas in advance of that, the first yeah. team were in Melwood and the academy and underage teams were in Kirby. So they they potentially would have been able to fulfil a team as of course Aston Villa had to do against Liverpool in the same competition last year when their first team bubble was breached by COVID-19 yeah, and as I say, that's what's caused a lot of this controversy and, and criticism of, of Liverpool and the way that they've handled this. But in terms of the following of the rules, Liverpool have essentially followed it to the letter in that mm. sense. The onus is on the EFL or the Premier League in, in different instances to really fully investigate. If they believe that maybe this is a borderline case and the game should have been played or, or certainly kept on, then the responsibility falls on the EFL in terms of the rules as they stand Liverpool are perfectly entitled to ask for this and likewise the EFL could have rejected it they could have said no you're not quite meeting the requirements so the game goes ahead they haven't I think it's a sensible choice um, but obviously you can't please everyone in this situation I don't think there's any bias that's going into this because if anything this is actually making Liverpool's job even harder mm. because they're now going to have far more games yes they'll have players back to cover that but they don't want a, a, a League Cup semi-final or an FA Cup game potentially being mixed up with their Champions League because they, they are the bigger fri bigger fish that Jurgen Klopp will have to fly, uh, yeah. fry later on this season. That, that's it, so don't be surprised. If, if a Liverpool under-23 or U team ends up fulfilling one of these legs if yeah. they eventually get reconvened. Um, we wanted to chat to you about more than just Liverpool and, and Irish players in the transfer <coughs> window, but maybe before I get to that, I'll stay on Merseyside. Um, Seamus Coleman, uh, you know, he's come out and he's fought the good fought he's 
fought, fought the good fight even he's talked a good talk in recent weeks but um, a significant signing for Everton today which is probably going to put a little bit of pressure on Seamus uh, albeit you know an ageing Seamus Coleman that succession planning probably needs to be brought in at some point yeah, Nathan Patterson, who's who's coming from from Rangers, is, is quite an exciting player. Obviously, he's kind of come through the youth ranks at, at Rangers. Was highly rated by Steven Gerrard when he was there. He's now kind of highlighted by Everton as the long term replacement to to Shamey in the Everton team. And it's it's an interesting situation because he's he has had a bit of criticism for me for covering Everton quite regularly. I think a lot of it is unjustified in terms of his performances. I don't think his level has, has dropped significantly. I still think he's a very experienced, very capable Premier League defender. But ultimately, as you say, given his age, given his injury record, he does need a break. He, he's not able to do 45 games a season. That's just, that's just impractical. And Nathan Patterson, who is young, will come into the club, will learn from Seamus Coleman. Um, he had a little bit of a jibe in his interview with Everton TV where the first thing Coleman said to him was that he was a Celtic fan to, to lay a bit of a marker down to him so I mean we talk about examples and, and Premier League level Seamus Coleman's one of the best examples to learn from particularly as, as a defender as a fullback he, he loves Everton Football Club he'll he'll leave Nathan Patterson under no doubt what it is to play for Everton what it means um, but I think on a practical level it is sensible because Seamus can't play the level of games that he was able to play but um, I definitely wouldn't rule him out talks of a decline or the fact that he's not going to play much anymore I'd, I'd be very cautious he is still club captain and, and he is still massively important to Everton Yeah and as we saw over the weekend willing to play wherever it is Rafa Benitez wants him to play as with a, a cameo at left wing back the, the weekend just gone yeah that's I mean that, that's Jamie Coleman written all over whether it's whether it's for Everton whether it's for Ireland it doesn't really matter he, he is that professional he is that concentrated on the task at hand that he will do that job and even under Carlo Ancelotti he was shifted around from right of a back three to a wing back to, to right back in a traditional flat four he, he has that versatility and he has that application to uh, to kind of getting getting the job done because he's he's captain he takes that very very seriously maintaining the standards within the squad and as I say the, the criticisms that have come surrounding Jamie are probably relating to this situation that he is nearing the end of his career and the injuries are beginning to take his toll but nobody could ever accuse Seamus mm. Coleman of, of not trying and pushing and driving to, to meet the standards that he sets for himself because the, he's been yeah. doing that for over a decade and, and that's what makes him the, the figure he is The other news from Everton today and, and it's a club that I think people don't appreciate just how strong the fan base is over here historically and has been handed down from generation to generation um, Graham Sharp um, brought onto the boards today now I I I, I know Graeme Sharp as a guy who does media at Goodison on match day and has, has obliged us on many occasions here in RTE. He's a mm. club ambassador. And I, I always get suspicious when lads like that get, you know, commandeered onto a board and you're wondering, is it an owner under pressure or a board under pressure bringing a legend on to try and win the fans over somewhat? I'd say, I mean, we're still very early in this. It's only been confirmed this afternoon. So I'd say in the here and the now, it probably falls somewhere in the middle of that. He is loved, as you say, but by Everton fans. And he's, he's a public voice and a public face. Um, and, he, and he speaks very candidly about Everton, whether it's issues on or off the pitch, whenever, whenever he gets asked, particularly in, in his role in the media. But in terms of the situation at Everton, what he's been moved into this, this board role for, again, it remains to be seen and will probably become clear in the next, next couple of weeks or so. But I hope that it's more than just a voice, a popular voice to kind of quell some of the fan irritation towards the situation with Rafa Benitez at the moment. But that still remains to be seen 
his experience at boardroom level is is pretty low. I'd say it's probably almost zero. Mm. Um, but he is a popular person, and he will come forward with his opinions on how things are going. The issue there is, will they be listened to? And that that's probably what the next two or three weeks will will show us. Yeah. When we look at the transfer window, obviously Aaron Connolly on the move, that loan transfer to Middlesbrough um, confirmed over the last couple of days. Um, when you look at it, you you can make quite a strong case that there's a couple of Irish players who could well do with either trying to get a move to play at a, a higher level or just simply get a move over the course of this window in order to put a little bit of pressure on Stephen Kenny to either win back or secure their place in the Irish squad? There is. I mean, I'm just looking through the squad list here from the, the last round of World Cup qualifiers in, in November and there's probably four or five players, particularly in that bracket of they're at a Premier League club, but they're just not playing enough um, in terms of first team action. The, the big names that probably jump out to me are Matt Doherty and, and Jeff Hendrick at Spurs and at Newcastle. New managers have come in at both sides. They've barely played. I think Hendrick's played about 15, 20 minutes since Eddie Howe's come in and Matt Doherty's played just over an hour and all of them have been, have been substitute appearances. Um, so you'd look at that situation and think maybe they do need a bit of a, a shock to the system to, to get their, their careers back on track because given the way that these new managers are looking to implement new systems and new ways of doing things, if they're not getting in the team now, Eddie Howe and, and Antonio Conte have both got their feet under the table now and got their plans in place, then that would probably indicate there's not a place for them. And particularly with Hendrick at, at Newcastle, Kieran Trippier, the deal is pretty much done. We expect it to be ticked off in the next 24, 48 hours. They are going to spend money and the likelihood is that one, maybe even two new midfielders will be coming in and that would put even more pressure on, on Jeff's position um, in terms of Doherty at Spurs he just doesn't seem to fit into what Antonio Conte wants uh, be it a system be it a, maybe a, a personal clash between them um, but it's it, it's a difficult one because he obviously wants to stay there they're pushing for European football so I think the likelihood for either of those two players is, is probably a lone move and then in attack Adam Eder the situation at Norwich is difficult because neither Dean Smith or, or Daniel Fark before him really had the kind of bravery to play him for a sustained period of games. With Norwich, it's Team Mabuki or, or nothing. If he doesn't play and he doesn't score goals, then they lose and they lose the majority of games as it is. So Eden needs that goal. I think he's still waiting to score in the Premier League. I know he's got a few in, in the cup competitions over the last couple of years, but you do get the impression with him that once that goal comes, and obviously the same for Ireland as well, things will, will start to flow a bit more freely for him. But He's on a bit of a losing ticket for, for me at Norwich because they're going to go down. They're probably going to go down before Easter or certainly in and around that time. And it's a thankless task for him trying to score goals in a team that doesn't create enough chances mm. for, for an internationally established striker like Timo Puki to score them on a regular basis. So they'd be my three picks. Um, some of the others generally, I think, just because of situations and contract positions, probably not, even if they're not playing regularly. But those three would be my picks for between now and the end of the month that, yeah, that could the, be moving on. The other one that jumps out is Dan, Darren Randolph. But you look at the situation that uh, Stephen Kenny has with his goalkeeper that even if Darren Randolph got back to week in, week out football, it's going to be very, very difficult to dislodge uh, Gavin Bazunu and Kevin Kelleher. Yeah, I think he, he's fourth choice now at the moment. I think he's, he's behind Mark Travers, who's obviously doing very well at Bournemouth. They're top of the championship at the moment. So, yeah, in terms of regular football at his age, you would think that's what he's pushing for. But in terms of his, his role within the Ireland squad, I think that's already been decided. Stephen Kenny's obviously been 
quite careful in choosing his words and saying that the door's never closed because Randolph's been so important to Ireland over the years. But in a position now with Bazunu and, and Kelleher, this is a hugely exciting position for Ireland to be in. You've got a goalkeeper from Manchester City and a goalkeeper from Liverpool fighting out for the number one jersey. Kelleher's obviously getting a lot of attention at the moment because he's playing for Liverpool, played very well against Chelsea the other night. But Gavin Bazunu is, is in possession of the number one shirt as it is. He's doing fantastic for Portsmouth this season and he is the man in favour with Stephen Kenny at the moment. So mm. as for Darren Randolph, I think if a move was to come along, probably would be a championship side looking to get an experienced keeper in. It'd be good for him to make sure that he's still ticking over. But I think while Stephen Kenny won't say it, he, he probably knows that his race for Ireland is, is, is run. Just to, to finish and maybe to bring it back to where we started, to Liverpool, we, we talked about Kelleher on the programme last night and we pondered whether or not it's like a situation that Thibaut Courtois found himself in a couple of years ago where you're at, a, you're at a big club but you're very much behind someone else in the pecking order irrespective of the quality you have. As someone who covers Liverpool and, and spends a lot of time around uh, Anfield and the training grounds, is there the possibility that Jurgen Klopp would be willing to allow him to go and get game time or is he just simply now too important, albeit as a backup, to allow him out the door even temporarily? No, I'd be shocked if he leaves between now and January. At the end of January, sorry, I'd be I'd be absolutely shocked. There, there was talk of this last year of of loan offers from from clubs on the continent and and a couple of championship teams in England. And Klopp just said no. Um, he's firmly second choice now. He's he's head and shoulders above Adrian in terms of performances and, and where Klopp sees him. And given the situation, as we mentioned at, at at the top of all these games that are being rescheduled and being shoehorned into midweek, there is going to be action for Kelleher. Um, the question's probably going to come in the summer about what he wants to do. He's twenty three. Um, he's in a position now where obviously goalkeepers do generally have a bit of a longer career he doesn't have to stick or twist but he does have a bit of a decision to be made because Klopp loves him the club rates him really highly you see some of the senior players the way that they talk about him but Alisson is, is going nowhere uh, and he's one of the best goalkeepers in, in world football Kelleher has proven that he's not just a, a placeholder he's able to come in and perform in big games and make big saves but you do get the sense that this summer there might have to be a conversation to be had between Kelleher and Klopp and, and his agent. But in terms of the here and now and the end of January, I'd be absolutely shocked if Kelleher went, went out on loan because, as you say, he's he's just too important because of the amount of games and, in fairness to him, because of the performances that he's turned in when, when Klopp's called him up. Fergal, appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much for being with us. No problem at all. Fergal Brennan with us there. We're going to stick with soccer. We're going to switch our attention to Africa and look ahead to the African Cup of Nations after the break. Game on on 2FM with Green Farm. Being flat to the mat isn't real. Our protein is get real. Game on on 2FM. And you're very welcome back to the programme. So we are going to finish by looking ahead to the African Cup of Nations, which uh, is set to get underway. It's uh, one of those tournaments which... We're going to hear from Ian Wright in a couple of minutes' time who's uh, come to defend it that perhaps doesn't get the respect it deserves within the football calendar and delighted uh, to be joined from South Africa by Mark Gleeson to preview the tournament. Mark, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Not too bad at all. It's very good to talk to you. Thanks so much for um, being with us. I, I'm not sure um, what the... the I, I would imagine there's a stark difference in coverage and anticipation in Europe as there is in Africa. Um, I, I always feel that this is an overly maligned competition and people don't give it credit for uh, the competitive nature of what we should expect to unfold in the coming weeks. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the tournament. It is the sports event uh, on the entire continent. I mean, Africa obviously doesn't really have the uh, wherewithal, the ability, the, I suppose, the logistics, the money to to host regular Olympics and um, and and major competitions like that, World Cups, etc. So it's really its its own competitions, and the and the Cup of Nations is is the competition sports wise um, on the continent. It has the entire continent on the edge of its seat it's a it's a month now that is really engenders the same sort of festive atmosphere that you have worldwide when when you have the euros or when you have the world cup mm. and it is a tournament i can imagine maybe the mix of relief and anticipation that must exist in the host nation cameroon who have had to wait for a tournament which has been deferred having effectively been stripped late on of the rights to host the 2019 edition yeah, I think they're authors of their own woes. To be honest with you, they they've had plenty of notice. They you know obviously bid for the competition themselves, and so did so with uh, with the promise of being able to put it together. They were supposed to host in 2019, but that was taken away from them because uh, after repeated inspection visits, they were found not to be ready. Um, they've had an extra year now uh, with the COVID pandemic because this these finals are are being held 12 months after they were originally scheduled. Um, and there's still a, quite a flurry in Cameroon to get things ready, particularly the main stadium. But, um, yeah, that's a little bit of the charm, I think, of the African Cup of Nations. Expect the unexpected. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't run with Germanic precision, that's for sure. That, and that is part of the beauty of the whole thing as well. But is there, is there a sense that while the match venues themselves are ready and are of a, a quality that one would exist of a tournament like this, that are there questions to be asked potentially about the infrastructure around the tournament and what it is the teams will have at their disposal over the coming weeks? Very much so, and it also depends a lot on your on your own um, pocket and how big your resources are. Morocco, for example, have taken a hotel in in uh, in Yaounde where they'll be playing and uh, taken out the entire hotel, stripped it out, um, really made it comfortable for their players, brought in their own food, chefs, water, etc., and made it a bit of an oasis from home. Now, if you're Gambia, Zimbabwe. Uh, the Camores Islands, you don't have the resources to, to do that sort of thing. And they put you into what is really, in, uh, by international standards, a uh, dodgy sort of roadside motel that you might find in Alabama. Uh, that's the kind of standard, I think, that, um, that that a lot of these teams are going to be put through. And that's what makes success at the Cup of Nations even even bigger and better is is the Spartan conditions that you have to deal with. The, the, you know, the, the travel on the bus, uh, that in itself is an obstacle course just getting to the training grounds. The facilities at, at training pitches are, are particularly poor, I think, in Cameroon. There's been a lot of complaint about uh, the standard of the pitches there. And then, of course, um, you, just your general living facilities. So if you can hang on in this tournament and do well, uh, it, it really is against all the odds and it does make success then so much sweeter. And before we, we talk about football itself, um, as with so many tournaments or major sporting events be it the Winter Olympics be it the FIFA World Cup be it whatever else you want to pick there is always uh, either an economical or a political backdrop against all these things and th there, there have been simmering tensions to say the least in Cameroon for quite some time and th there are concerns about the security element of the tournament yeah, I think I think some of that's been a little bit overplayed. I mean, there is a there is a small insurrection. Uh, it's on language lines as the English speaking minority have been battling for for more rights for some while now. And the president of Cameroon is the longest serving leader in in the world, over forty years in charge. Paul Beer, complete dictator who who is 
uh, allegedly, I should use the word, um, plundered the the coffers, lives in a half a year in a villa in the south of France, etc., etc. One of your old style, um, the, the last one of the last one or two old style francophone dictators. So, so Cameroon do have. Um, do have a bad political track record that they bring into this tournament. Um, I think it's highlighted, obviously, by the hosting of the Cup of Nations, but it has been ongoing for some while. I don't think it, it presents a, a serious security threat to, to to the teams and the players, though. OK, before we, we get stuck into the football itself and maybe the teams to watch out on, uh, mentioned at the outset that it is a tournament which is often overly maligned in Europe and, and people look at the inconvenience of losing players from the English Premier League clubs that they support rather than looking at the competitiveness of what's about to play out. One man who's been very vocal on the subject is Ian Wright, who's been defending AFCON's place in the soccer calendar. How are you doing, everybody? Just got a little something on my chest. I've got to ask some people out there. Is there ever a tournament more disrespected? More disrespected than the African Cup of Nations? There's no greater honour, none, as a sports person, than representing your country. The coverage is completely tinged with racism. Completely tinged. We played our Euros across 10 countries in the middle of a pandemic and there's no issue no issue at all but Cameroon a single country hosting a tournament is a problem you're getting journalists asking players like players getting asked if they will be honoring the call-ups for their national teams if they will be honoring imagine if that was an English player representing the free lines have you ever heard anybody asking an English player if he'll ever will he be honoring the call-up can you imagine the furore loads of the best players in Europe right now are African. And if we love them at club level, why can't we love them at international level like their counterparts from across the globe? Why can't we? Why is this tournament constantly, constantly getting so much flack? I've got to say shout out to the countries that have qualified, the players like Sebastian Haller, who are taking a stand against the media backlash. The media, plus, plus Patrick Vieira. Patrick Vieira coming out and speaking about this. And this is again, why it's important that you do have a black manager who can let people understand where his roots are and how important this tournament is for for African people. The shaming has gone on for too long. I just want to wish Cameron all the success with hosting this tournament. And like I say to the players, all the very, very best to you and the fans. That's Mark Wright, or Ian Wright, not Mark Wright, Ian Wright chatting on his uh, Instagram um, in the recent days. Mark, is, is that part of the discussion that there would be any awareness of at all, that, that there exists this culture in Europe where this is seen as an inconvenience that's robbing players from the Premier League or whatever other league it is you want to pick? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Wright's comments that that little clip was uh, extensively played around the continent. Uh, people were very happy to hear it as they were the clips from Vieira's press conference when he also defended the tournament. And there is a, a little African sensitivity, I think more and more so now that we live in this global village and that you know Africans consume the Premier League and other European leagues with the same uh, enthusiasm that, that that people in in those particular countries do. I mean, it's you know it's massively covered. Yeah, whatever Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah do on a weekend for Liverpool is uh, is headline news across the African continent. So uh, Africans are very aware of uh, of what is being said in Europe, and I think very sensitive about it. I, I do. I do think sometimes you've got to be careful not to sort of jump onto this onto this bandwagon of a sort of an us them because the Cup of Nations is is in a way 
um, makes its own bed uh, in terms of the controversy about its timing because of its timing, if you know what I mean. Uh, it, it was a very stubborn uh, last president of African football that absolutely refused to rem- to move the tournament from January to mid-year, uh, despite the fact that it was becoming more and more evident that the real losers in this whole thing are the players. You know, they 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 struggle with the club versus country dilemma. They have uh, the manager in the one year telling them to stay and help the club uh, in the predicament perhaps or or perhaps chasing a, a a league title and on the other hand they've got the national coach in the other ear saying you know where's your patriotism and come and represent the country and so they're really torn and it was getting worse and worse uh, until until they had a change of leadership in CAF and they moved the tournament to mid-year which made complete sense so the last tournament in Egypt was the first one was played in mid-year and that's uh, that, that's going to be the schedule from now onwards. The problem with this Cameroon event is it's a bit of an anomaly because of the, the weather in, in, in mid-year is absolutely atrocious. It's yeah. the rainy season. So they had to move it to January. But so it's brought up it's brought up a debate that we that we we had hoped was now over. And of course Jurgen Klopp uh, made the statement in December he called the Nations Cup that that little tournament and he got a lot of flack for that as well. Yeah and deservedly so. Yeah, so that just kind of heightened the whole thing up. But, I mean, essentially the Cup of Nations should never have been played in January anyway. And that was a real stubbornness on the part of the Africans who did not want to be seen to be kowtowing to the European clubs. Now, the irony of all ironies is we've been chatting for 10 minutes. We're now tight for time and we're only finally getting around to chatting about the football itself. (laughs) And the the beauty of this is there is no dominant force. Algeria, admittedly, are the defending champions, are on a phenomenal run of form. But you could throw a blanket over Algeria, Egypt, Senegal, the Ivory Coast, Cameroon, plenty of teams who more than are capable of winning, depending on how things play out. Yeah, look, I've been covering this tournament since 1992. This will be my 16th now, and I've never got it right. So um, I, I'm going to give it a I'm going to give it a bash, but don't take my word for it. Is what is what I'm saying. I I, I think that the the four North African teams, the the Arabic speaking sides, uh, are a force, but they traditionally do very poorly south of the Sahara. So that's Algeria, Egypt, Morocco, and Tunisia. They'll be there and thereabouts, but they seem to, it's, it seems to take its toll, these kind of tournaments, once it's south of the Sahara. I think the traditional West African giants like Nigeria, um, Ivory Coast and Ghana are a little bit undercooked at the moment. They're not as strong a generation as they were before, uh, and, that they, and that they perhaps don't have the wheels to go all the way. Cameroon, the hosts, will have a heavy burden of expectation. I think that's going to sit a little bit too heavily for them. In my opinion, that leaves Senegal. Senegal have never won this tournament before. Uh, it's a quality, quality squad. They've romped through the qualifiers. They've romped through the World Cup qualifiers. They're definitely going to go through to Qatar, that's for sure. They've got uh, Mane leading a, a high-quality lineup, full of self-confidence. It's theirs it's theirs for the losing, in my opinion. And but then I've probably put the hex on them. <laughs> exactly. You've preempted my final comment. Now that you've tipped them, they're goosed altogether. So exactly. we'll see how it plays out. Mark, I've no doubt you will uh, chat to one of us between now and tournament's end. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for your insights. Very kind. Thank you. That's Mark Leeson joining us from South Africa, the African Cup of Nations, all set to get underway uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, thank you very much for your company over the course of the last hour. It's uh, time for us to make way for Tara, who's on the way after seven o'clock. A word of thanks to our production team, Dermot O'Brien, Laura Lee Davies, the programme produced by Ronan Lawler, from Damien O'Mara. Until we chat again tomorrow, thanks for your time. Game on on 2FM. With 
Green Farm. Being up to 90 isn't real. The protein in our range is Get Real. Two. 